welcome, Exodus 7 through 11. So, this morning, you got your Bibles open, and here we go. The title of my lesson this morning is, Our Redeemer Makes Himself Known Above All Other Gods. Now, in the first six chapters of Exodus, the stage has been set and the action has begun, and we see that this is kind of a prologue to the birth of a new nation. God was positioning himself as the redeemer and their deliverer. And so back in Exodus 1, do you remember we were introduced to two midwives, Shifra and Pua, right? And now we have two more spiritual midwives, you might say, Moses and Aaron, who are stepping in. And um, just like the uh, Hebrew midwives saved the little Hebrew baby boys, Moses and Aaron are going on God's behalf to deliver the people of Israel from Egypt. So they're groaning at this point, right? They're in slavery, they're under all kinds of affliction and pains, and it's gonna get worse now in chapters seven through 11. You might think of these as labor pains, they're in labor. And I got to thinking about what a baby experiences during the birth process. The baby passes through a very narrow and dark place. And when the baby is born into the light and into a new kind of life, a new kind of freedom, right? That's what's happening to the people of Israel here. Psalm 118 says, out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. And the word free here means an open place, a broad place. That is what God is doing for the people of Israel. I got to thinking about what a mother experiences during labor. A first time mom has no idea what to expect. And for me, I thought once my labor started, it would be any minute. And then I discovered it wasn't any minute, but it became hours and hours. I had, I had no idea the kind of intensity of what to expect from the whole process. And so that's what's happening here in Exodus 7 through 11. The plagues are increasing in intensity, just like contractions do in labor. And it gets to the point where it's very serious, and at the end, what does Pharaoh say? He's very urgent, and in haste, he pushes them out, right? So this is the point where the, the people of Israel then, we're gonna come to that next week, the actual Exodus. So the key verse for us this morning is, is this, Exodus 9, 14 through 16. For this time I will send all of my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people, here's a purpose phrase, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, Yahweh the Lord, he could have wiped Egypt off the face of the earth with a single word, or he could have just destroyed them all with snapping his fingers. He didn't need 10 plagues. One plague would have done it all. He could have just said, pestilence, boom, you're gone done, my people are free. But instead, in his mercy and in his kindness, God gave warning after warning, plague after plague, pain after pain, chance after chance. Yahweh is exactly who he said he is. 
And like Moses and like Pharaoh, like the people of Israel and like the people of Egypt, that is our greatest need. We need to know the Lord our God, Yahweh, and who he is. We need to know his name, his identity, his character, his love, his commitment to us, his faithfulness to all of his promises, his gracious provision for us, his lack of partiality, his sovereignty over all the kingdoms of the earth. We need to know his power, his power in judgment and his power in salvation. And we know that he is righteous in his judgments. So the main idea this morning is that our Redeemer wants the Egyptians and us to know that he is the Lord and that there is no other, that there are no other gods. And he's going to be making it super abundantly clear through persuasive power and extraordinary acts that he has all power. He is making himself known. And so in the first seven verses, we're going to read these together, God is going to reveal himself to Moses as Yahweh, the one and only God. He, he had revealed himself already, but now Moses is going to go to Pharaoh, and God says, you are going to be like God to Pharaoh. So let's read this. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But... I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And we're going to talk about this more later. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. How is he going to do that? By great acts of judgment. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And so Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So God is doing this so that the Egyptians will know him and the Egyptians are going to know him by his wrath, by his judgment. But the people of Israel are going to know him how? by his mercy, by salvation, by redemption, when he stretches out his hand to redeem them. So there's two ways to know the Lord. Phil Riken, in his commentary on Exodus, said it this way. He said, in the Exodus, God used both sides of his hand. With his palm, he gently led the Israelites out of bondage, while at the same time giving the back of his hand to the Egyptians. So we see these two sides, okay? We see redemption and salvation, we see the wrath and judgment. It's the same God, all right? He reveals his glory in two ways. And this should encourage us to pray, to pray for our families and even God's enemies because God wants to reveal himself. And he does that sometimes through judgment and that will bring people to know him, all right? Ultimately, we know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's Philippians 2. And I think it's so sweet here that uh, Moses tells his age. And I'm encouraged by this. Here we have, here we have two 80-plus-year-olds, okay? I want to read to you a quote from D.L. Moody, who said, Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody. Then he spent 40 years on the backside of the desert realizing he was nobody. 
And finally, he spent the last 40 years of his life learning what God can do with a nobody. <laughs> All right, so now, point number two, we have the warning of hardening, and we see this in uh, verses 8 through 13. We're not, I'm not going to read all of it, but Pharaoh initiates this sequence himself, doesn't he? He says, prove yourselves by working a miracle. Not that he had any intention of believing. He didn't listen, and Moses knew that he wasn't going to listen, didn't he? Now, we see four recurring themes in Exodus 7 here. We see a theme of obedience. Obedience means acting on God's promises, trusting God's promises. And so here we see that Moses and Aaron stop making excuses, and they are, we are told repeat, repeatedly that they did just as the Lord commanded. And don't you want this to be said about you? I want to do what the Lord commands. All right, the second thing theme that we see here is that there are counter, counterfeit signs. All right, Aaron threw down his staff here, and it became a serpent, right? One commentator said that taking a symbol of authority like this, a staff, think about the pharaoh, how he would hold a scepter, a staff is like that, Throwing this on the ground and making it crawl in the dust was a direct assault on Pharaoh's sovereignty and the entire Egyptian belief system. He said it would be like taking a bald eagle into the Oval Office and wringing its neck and throwing it on the ground. Okay, because he's standing before the most powerful man, you know, in Egypt and, and doing this. So now we also read here that these wise uh, men and sorcerers did the same by their secret arts. This is like a magic show. It's trickery, and it's likely demonic. But although Satan has limited power to perform imitation signs, he does not have absolute power. Okay, Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 7, which is kind of scary. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. So there are people that can do these kinds of miraculous things, even in the name of God, but they're not real. So we need to be, be aware. Test every spirit. All right, number three of themes is God's power is superior over all the other false gods of Egypt. You notice that most of these signs showed God's providence over animals, right? Snakes, frogs, flies, gnats, um, locusts, they were all summoned by God for judgment on Egypt. So we're going to see God's power over and over. And this confrontation was not just a battle between Moses and Pharaoh, or Aaron and Pharaoh, or even between Israel and Egypt, but this is a battle between Yahweh and Satan. This is a massive battle here. But we see Satan's limited power is going to become even more obvious as the plagues continue. We're going to see that the magicians were able to duplicate some of Aaron's signs, but it's almost comical that they add to the misery of the people when they do the same thing, all right? So now what we see coming are works of judgment. These 10 plagues, or signs, or wonders, or powers, the main point is that they demonstrate God's sovereign power and God's works of judgment. We read in Exodus 12, 12, God said, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike the firstborn, and you mark that word, and we're gonna talk about that more next week. Firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt that I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. 
So the point of the plagues are, are not so much that each individual plague was directed at one certain false god of Egypt. Sometimes there is a direct correlation, and Egyptian scholars have actually pointed out that there is, you know, there was a false god for many of these plagues. But when Yahweh defeats the nation, he is doing so, he is defeating all of their gods. And that's the point. God is defeating all the gods of Egypt. All right, so we come now to the plagues. Exodus 7 through 11, we're going to move through here quickly. There's a lot of repetition here, and you saw that this week. Did you all love that table that I put in your homework? <laughs> Good. Okay, well, I hope that you found it helpful in order to see some patterns, because there were patterns that developed when you see the big picture and you look at them individually. We saw Pharaoh's continued refusal to listen. We saw that the Lord is the initiator, demonstrating his power. And you saw a progression, right? You saw that there was an increase of intensity in these plagues. Warren Wiersbe said, the longer sinners resist God's will and refuse to hear his word, the louder he has to speak to them through his judgments. And that's what's happening. God is speaking louder and louder. Did you notice a phrase at the beginning of each, of each plague? Then the Lord said, all right? Remember that Moses also wrote Genesis, where we have the creation account. Do you remember what happened in Genesis? When the Lord said, and it was, over and over, that's the way he created everything. So here in Exodus, what we see is a reversal of sorts. Each plague is bringing more and more chaos. We also see here that the, the plagues are in three sets of three. Did you notice that? There's, there's three cycles and there's three plagues in each. So we're gonna go through them by cycles. Number one is the Nile turning to blood. And you might have also noticed that the first in each of these cycles happens in the morning, all right? And it also gives with God giving a reason. So we're gonna note the providence of God here. Remember Pharaoh's daughter went down to the river to bathe and she found Moses, right? and she saved his life. She delivered him out of the Nile River. And what we have here in this section is literally the people of Israel are gonna be delivered out of Egypt because of this plague on the Nile. And we last, I think last week or the week before when I was here, we talked about the irony of Pharaoh having the, ordering the death of the Hebrew baby boys and turning the river into a river of death because he was ordering them to be thrown into the river to die. And so now here is their sacred river, their river that there was a source of life is now becoming death to them. They can't drink this water anymore. Another thing I find strange here is when the magicians do the same thing, why did they not just try to turn the, the bloody water back into water they could drink? But instead they make the problem worse, right? They take what little water is left and they pour it on the ground and they turn it into blood. So it doesn't make any sense. All right, number two is the frogs. Now, the second of the cycles, in the second one of each cycle, Moses goes into the palace and he confronts Pharaoh face to face in the palace. Now, frogs were sacred in Egypt. People couldn't, were not allowed to kill the frogs. So there was nothing Egyptians could do about this plague. Horrible, And it's, the other thing that's ironic about it is the frogs was seen as like their fertility goddess. 
And so as they're proliferating all over the country, they, you know, they can't help but step on them when they're walking. And they're in their beds and they're in their bowls. And so when they're baking their bread, they're smelling burnt frogs. It just had to be terrible. And because they weren't allowed to kill them, then when the plague ends, then they have all these rotting frogs all at the same time. And the land just stinks because of them. And we see Pharaoh's response is that he hardens his heart. And we get a glimpse here of what this hardened heart actually does. Pharaoh saw clear, direct evidence of God, his power, his word, and yet he still refused to accept it or submit to it. Now, each cycle also ends with a plague that comes without a warning or no confrontation, and it's an unannounced plague. And so the third one in this cycle is the gnats. Now, the magicians could not imitate this one, and so what do they say? This is the finger of God. And we say, why, yes, it is. It is a finger of God. The dust to gnats reminds us of back in Genesis chapter 2, when God formed man from what? The dust of the earth. And then he breathed into man the breath of life. And he became a living creature. That's what Moses is doing with these gnats. He's letting them go, and they're becoming alive. It's also interesting that dust back in Genesis refers to part of the curse that was put on the serpent. When God said, because you have done this, cursed are you. And then he says, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And what do you think happens when these gnats are everywhere? Do you think Pharaoh eats a few of these? Probably swallows a few, yeah. All right, so here is Satan's man Pharaoh who would encounter dust that God made into gnats. So the first of these first three plagues were on everyone, okay, Egypt and Israel. Um, the people of Israel were suffering along with the Egyptians, but from here on out there's a distinction, and only the Egyptians are affected. Okay, in the second cycle, these get to be more painful, more costly, and it affects their possessions, their land, the cattle themselves. They're getting just more personal here. And then we come to the third cycle, and these are more dangerous, and these are not just natural disasters, these are supernatural disasters here. The first is hail, and this is a plague that, it, it's in this section in chapter nine that we have the reminder of God's purpose in the plagues. This is the section then where we read verse 15, where God says, for by now, I could have put out my hand, and I could have, I could have wiped out all of Egypt. But instead, for this purpose, I've raised you up, that you will see me, that you will know who I am. So God's purpose is to be known. He is exactly who he said he is. And so he's showing his power, his strength, even though Pharaoh thought he was showing his own strength. Now, in this section, we also see that some of the Egyptians even feared the Lord and believed what he said because they also brought their, their land and their animals inside before the hail hit, okay? Number eight, the locusts. The repeated idea is clear in this plague as well as we hear that this was for the purpose of showing God's powerful signs, that Moses was to tell the generations to come what had happened. This is missions. And then the ultimate purpose is listed again, that they may know the Lord. And note that there's a warning here from Moses and Aaron that's very clear. If you refuse, this is going to happen, right? And now Moses' servants at this point also plead with him in verse 7. Don't you understand that Egypt is ruined? Yeah. 
The locusts were gonna destroy everything. And when everything was gone, what is gonna be left? A famine. Do you see the irony here as well? What was it that God brought the people of Israel to Egypt because of? A famine, right. And so here it's a famine that plays a role in driving them out as well. So here we see warning after warning, plague after plague, Yahweh is showing himself both merciful and mighty. And God does the same today. God continues to give warning after warning for us to forsake our idols as well, whether they're money or possessions or a reputation or whatever it is. We need to examine our own hearts, right? We don't need to have locusts destroying our lives as well. All right, the ninth plague is darkness. Now the chief god, false god of the Egyptians was Ra, the sun god. And the belief was that when the sun went down at night, Ra would be wrestling, doing battle with the serpent of, dark, of darkness all night. And then when the sun came up in the morning, what do you think it was a sign of then? Ra is victorious. So now we have three days that the sun doesn't come up. What do you think they're thinking? Yeah. Now, darkness is associated with a couple of different things in the Bible. The first thing is creation. Remember, initially everything was dark, right? And without form and void, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Darkness is also associated with unbelief. We see this in 2 Corinthians 4 when we read that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so they cannot see the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It takes God having to say, let light shine into that hard heart so that that person can see. We also see darkness when Jesus dies on the cross. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So in Genesis 1, God said, let there be light. And in the ninth plague, he said, let there be darkness. And in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, and there was that creative power that was at work. And we're going to see in the 10th plague, what do we see? The Spirit of God coming over, and the firstborn is killed. But those who are under the blood are passed over. So we'll get to that next week. All right. The next thing we're going to get to here is that 10th plague, and I basically just wanted to say that we're at number 10, and those of you that have had a baby have heard those words, you're at a 10, it's time to push. And that is, that's what's happening here, okay, this is, this is the last plague, and the people are going to be let go, and we're going to see that next week. Okay, now we come to a tough topic, okay, we're going to talk about uh, the topic of Pharaoh's heart being hardened, and I, my prayer is that this will not be an academic exercise for us, okay? This hits really close to home for many of us. I think we all have people in our lives that we've been praying for, maybe for years and years, who have a heart that is hard toward the gospel. Their, their eyes are blind, they can't see, and we've been praying and praying. And I'm looking out here going, I know that for some of you, you have seen God answer prayers miraculously even this fall. And so I just want to say, keep praying and keep hoping. Okay, don't let this topic of the hardening of the heart send you out of here this morning despairing. My hope is that 
is that you leave here this morning with a renewed sense of hope and a burden to pray, okay? There is no hardness of heart that is too hard for God. God can overcome the hardest of hearts. And we have this promise in Ezekiel chapter 11. I will remove the heart of stone and give the heart of flesh. Okay, that is Ezekiel 19. And then Jeremiah 32, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing. So that should fuel our prayers for our families and friends with hard hearts. So our God is strong to save, and he is a God of mercy. And so that is our hope. If God had mercy on me, he can have mercy on any hard heart that is out there. Okay? Now, as I mentioned a week ago, we tend to think of someone who is hard-hearted as someone who is cold and cruel. But that's not the meaning of the word here. In the Bible, the heart refers to the mind, the will, and the intentions. And so when we read that Pharaoh hardened his heart, we understand that Pharaoh was reinforcing his resolve to defy God's command. And he was determined that he was not going to let the people go. So I want to look at another repeated phrase that you saw in Exodus 7 through 11. And that phrase is, as the Lord had said. Okay, we saw this over and over. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen, as the Lord had said. And I think I have those on your handout, all the different references that we saw. Now, when had God said this? God had told Moses way back before he even went to Egypt that Pharaoh would not listen. This was way back in Exodus 4.21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do, be Pharaoh all, do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So Moses knew going in that God was at work underneath here. You might hear arguments that God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart doesn't start until the seventh plague and that it's a result of his own self-hardening. Some commentators do take that view. But I think we can see from Exodus that that is not the case. God told Moses even before he went to Egypt, before he arrived in Egypt, Pharaoh, he, he said to Moses, Moses, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's not going to listen to you. But you still need to obedient, be obedient and go. You still need to say what I've commanded you to say even though he's not going to listen to you. And that's exactly what happened, wasn't it, in, in this section. So even before the first flag, uh, plague, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, in your extra time section this week, if any of you got to it, or maybe you can go back to it later, there's a table in there where you could look at references to places where the Lord had hardened his heart, places where Pharaoh himself hardened his heart, or places where it says that his heart was hardened. And I would, I would strongly suggest that you go back and you look at that. But the point here is that whether it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, or that his heart was hardened, or the Lord hardened his heart, in each case, it was as the Lord had said. He said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And so on Sunday, Pastor John said, the word for is like a drill bit. Remember, he said it's a drill bit, and we just dig down deeper and understand the reasons why. And so behind all the action here that's going on, behind all the hardening is the plan and the purpose 
of God. Hardening is not described as God's response to Pharaoh's actions, but as sovereign rule over Pharaoh. The sovereign will of God is happening here. He softens and hardens hearts as he pleases. Proverbs 21 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. So here we see a tension, don't we, between the sovereignty of God on one hand and the responsibility or the accountability of man on the other. We see these two truths that are here, and this is really difficult, because how can it be true that if God is in charge of everything, that we can still be held responsible for our actions? This is really difficult, and commentators and really smart people call this a mystery. A lot of people try to solve the mystery by taking one at the expense of the other, and I would caution you, sisters, don't do that. Both things are true, and we can see the truth from Scripture. So don't throw one out and hold up the other one. Just leave it as a mystery, okay? We see that God was sovereign over Pharaoh's heart, but not in a way that took away his own personal responsibility. A couple of times you read, didn't you? Yet Pharaoh sinned and hardened his heart, right? Pharaoh was being held responsible for his actions and his activities because they were his own actions. Pharaoh, in his hard heart, continued to do what he wanted to do. Now, in Romans 9, Paul tackled this topic, and so that's where I want to go. And on your handout, I printed out this passage of Scripture for you. We're going to start in verse 11, where Paul writes of Jacob and Esau. He said, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now this is Exodus 33, 19, and we're gonna get to this after Christmas, but this is a passage where Moses says to God, show me your glory. And God says, you can't live and see my glory, but I'll put you in in the side of a rock, and this is how I'm gonna reveal myself to you. This is what he says, this is who he is. Paul goes on, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And this is Exodus 9, 16. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he will. So Paul is pointing to the freedom of God in mercy, that he can show mercy to whoever he wills. And then he points back to Exodus, and he says, and he can harden whomever he wills. So what does this mean? People who are hardened against God are really guilty. They bear responsibility. They really are at fault, and they really are deserving of judgment. And our fallen human minds 
demand an explanation for how this can be. How can we be held responsible, have real guilt, but God decides who is hardened? So Paul then goes on. He says he raises, this is the objection. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? That's the most common objection that we hear, isn't it? How can you hold me responsible? So how does Paul answer? He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Okay, God has the freedom. Who are we to answer back to God? His answer here is that mercy and hardening are both unconditional. We come from what? He says, has a potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy in which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. This is God's amazing mercy. And so Paul's emphasis is here that it's not on the makeup of the clay. It's not who we are in our nature. Okay, it's, it's up to God who decides. It's his will. He has mercy on who he wills. And I included a a quote for you from Pastor John Piper that I'll read, and then I will wrap this up. God hardens unconditionally, and those who are hardened are truly guilty and truly at fault in their hard and rebellious hearts. Their own consciences will justly condemn them. If they perish, they will perish for real sin and real guilt. How God freely hardens and yet preserves human accountability, we are not explicitly told. The real question is, what is the more, more biblical name for this mystery? Is it ultimate human self-determination, or is it unconditional election? Romans 9.18 is plain in its context to all who will see. God has mercy on whom he wills and hardens whomever he wills. The mystery remains, but the revelation is clear. Now, we've seen here in the plagues that Pharaoh repeatedly defied God's word. We see how he deserved judgment, but we also see God's patience. God repeatedly offering Pharaoh the opportunity to repent and obey. And secondly, we also see, and it's important for us to see this, that Yahweh is working out his sovereign plans to redeem his people and to put his glory on display for Pharaoh and for all the people. So God is not at the mercy of Pharaoh or his heart the outcome is never in doubt here, even though Pharaoh keeps defying God's word. In fact, God uses even Pharaoh's heart to accomplish his purposes. J.I. Packer said, people treat God's sovereignty as a matter of controversy, but in scripture, it's a matter of worship. And that's where I would, I would want to leave you, is that, ladies, it's a matter of worship that God has mercy on us. It's a mystery. Why did God have mercy on me? That should cause me to worship, and it should also drive me to my knees to pray 
for those that I know that still are blind. Psalm 95 warns us, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then Hebrews use Psalm 95 for us to continue in the faith, to continue to hear the gospel, believe the gospel, trust in Christ, guard your hearts from becoming hard. Now we end with a couple of purpose statements here. God's purpose was to reveal himself, to make himself known, his name and his power known in such a way that he would be glorified, not only by Israel, but by Egypt, and eventually by all the earth. Remember when back in chapter five when Pharaoh said, I don't know the Lord. <laughs> Do you think he knows who Yahweh is by this point? Yes. A massive question is who is the Lord? And the purpose statement that we've seen over and over again is that you may know that I am the Lord. That is the purpose here. Jeremiah 32 says this. It says, you have shown signs and wonders in the lands of Egypt and to this day in Israel among all mankind and have made a name for yourself at, at, as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror. We're gonna see the great terror next week when we get to chapters 12 and 13. So why the plagues? Just really briefly, and I know you have them on your handout, but I'm just gonna read these reasons, okay? First, they show the omnipotence of God and his power. We're gonna see the theme next week of firstborn. I didn't skip chapter 11 intentionally. We'll, we'll talk about it next week. Number two, the plagues show God's sovereign protective power. All right, shielding his people. We saw a clear distinction between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. And it's based on God's mercy, not because there were some bad people and some good people. It's based on mercy. And we're gonna see that next week as the people of Israel put the blood over their doorposts. This is pointing to a substitute in mercy. Number three, they show God's sovereign wrath and punishment of his enemies for the cruel treatment of the Jews. And number four, they were a judgment of God upon the demons and the false gods of Egypt. Number five, they were also sent for Israel. Okay, they were not just plagues on Egypt, they were for Israel. Deuteronomy 4 says, has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand, an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did, what? For you in Egypt, before your eyes. To, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other God beside him. These plagues were also sent for, for Israel. Number six, they were designed to strengthen the faith of Moses. He needed faith for the journey ahead. James 1 tells us, count it all joy, my brethren, when you call into trials of various kinds, because what do trials produce? Steadfastness, endurance, right, of your faith. Number seven, they were a solemn warning to other nations that God would curse those who curse Israel. And number eight, they were not only a warning, but they were intended that the nations might worship Yahweh. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in where? All the earth. It's Global Focus Week. That's the purpose of these plagues, that God would be known in all the earth. Hebrews 11 tells us by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, didn't perish 
Why? Because she, she, she saved the spies, right? Well, why did she save the spies? Do you remember? She had heard. She had heard what God had done. God's name and fame had spread to Jericho. And so she had heard, and she was saved because of that. So when we see God's sweet and stunning and shocking sovereignty, the way the Lord made himself known in the plagues, we will know that he is God, and we are not. And then we will find true freedom and joy. And his intention is not that we just know him in a grudging way, but as, that he is awesome, that he is amazing, and that we would bow down in glad worship, knowing that God is for us and not against us. So I, my prayer is that you will see and know this amazing God. Let me pray and use Psalm 86 and Psalm 66 to do that. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Lord, may that be so that we would make known the wonders of your name. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.